got your copy of God's Word. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 4, we're going to pick up right where we left off this past Sunday, working verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. As you're finding your place there, uh, you've probably heard of a guy in history named Benjamin Franklin, right? You've heard of him maybe a time or two as you were growing up and taking history and and especially revolutionary type of history. Benjamin Franklin was born in Boston, Massachusetts, but later years of his teen, teenage years, he moved uh, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And we know about P- Philadelphia, Pennsylvania uh, as well. Philadelphia was the capital of the colonies. Uh, later, it became the capital of the United States of America. It's a very influential city. It was the p- siding of the si- signing of the Declaration of Independence. So P- Philadelphia is a, is a big-time important city in our country. Well, Benjamin Franklin lived there for most of his life. And as Benjamin Franklin was living there in the city, he began to notice that as the city continued to grow, as the city... Uh, and continued to spread and, and become more and more busy that the infrastructure was inadequate. It was not keeping up to the number of people within the city. In fact, the, seat, the streets were unsafe. The streets were dangerous even. They were full of potholes, they had mud holes, you'd drive your cures down the road and splash water on everybody. There were stones that were, had been laid there to build the roads, those were coming up, and so it was a danger for both the carriage as well as the pedestrian to walk up and down the roads and the walkways. And so that was dangerous, but that wasn't all that was dangerous. Uh, The streets became a place where you could get accosted and robbed after dark, and so When the sun set, uh, people were fearful to go out in the streets of Philadelphia. And so Franklin, seeing this need, seeing this this terrible situation going on in his city, went to the city officials and began to share this information with those who were in the power, those who could make decisions. He began to tell them about the unsafe road conditions. He began to stress how unsafe it was to walk outside because of uh, thieves and robbers. And they listened to him, but sort of just brushed everything to the side. And now when you think about that, it's hard for us to believe sitting here, what, 200 and over 250 years removed from that. And we know who Benjamin Franklin was. We know the things he accomplished. We know that he was an incredible uh, colonial leader. We know that he was a drafter as well as a signer of the Declaration of Independence. We know him to be a scientist. I mean, he's the one flying the kite with the key on it and discovers electricity from that standpoint. He's the guy who invented the bifocals that so many of us uh, love today. I always forget to bring them up here and then I forget to put them on my head. Um, We also know that he was later the governor of the state of Pennsylvania. So we look at this history and we think, how in the world could the officials of Philadelphia not listen to Benjamin Franklin? What was it about him? Did they not know him? Well, he went to them often. He went multiple times before them, sharing these concerns to the city officials, and yet they continued to brush him off. Why did they continue to brush him off? It could be that they didn't know him, but I don't believe they didn't 
know who he was. He was a diplomat. I mean, he carried a lot of hats during his adult years. He was a, a, a newspaper producer. He was a printer. I mean, he, he, he accomplished much in his life. I believe the reason they kept brushing him to the side is because they didn't recognize his authority. He was just a scientist. He was just a diplomat. He was just the, the politician. And so when they looked at him, perhaps they said something like this. Now, Benji, you mean well. You, you, you've done a lot. You've accomplished a lot. I mean, you are incredible. You know a lot about electricity. You, I'm wearing eyeglasses today, Benji, because of you. you, you you've negotiated diplomacy overseas on behalf of the country. Thank you for that. But you don't have a lick of experience when it comes to city government. Why don't you leave that to the officials? Why don't you leave that to the professionals? And you deal with what you are an expert in. So in a real way, the city leaders there in Philadelphia didn't know Benjamin Franklin. See, they failed to recognize that he was a blessing and an asset to his city. And as we have been walking through the first four chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and Lord willing, we'll finish it next Sunday, which will be 14 messages in the first four chapters of Luke. And so I calculated that this morning. At the end of Luke 24, we'll have like 84 messages out of the Gospel of Luke. So that'll take the next four, five, six years, and we'll get through it. At this rate, it may take that long. But we're going verse by verse. And so what we have seen so far in these first four chapters is that there were many people who, when they saw Jesus and they experienced Jesus and they watched what he was doing, they didn't always know him. They didn't recognize him for who he actually was. Now, there were some people who did know Jesus. There were some people who did recognize Jesus. For instance, Mary, Jesus' mother, she knew who Jesus was. She knew he was the Son of God. She knew that she had carried him uh, 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 incarnately, that Jesus had been put in her womb by the Holy Spirit. She knew Jesus. The angels and the shepherds that we saw in Luke 2, they also knew Jesus. They knew him to be the Son of God. They knew him to be the Messiah. Then we have Simeon and Anna, we know that they had been anticipating Jesus. And so when they saw him come to be presented there on the eighth day of his life in the temple court area, they recognized the Messiah. They knew Jesus. There were others who knew Jesus. Uh, we see that John the Baptist recognized him. He saw him coming there on the banks of the Jordan River, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew Jesus. Then we come into Luke chapter 4 and we see clearly that Satan himself understood the identity of Jesus Christ. Three different times we see that temptations being unfolded and playing out there before Jesus. Satan trying to bring him down. Then in our passage this morning, what we're going to see is that the demons of hell also, along with Satan, recognize Jesus for who he was. But not just them. We're going to see that the people of Capernaum recognized Jesus, came to know Jesus in a special, unique, salvific way. But here's what I want to do before moving further, before getting into the text and reading this morning. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to imagine yourself in the pages of this story. Uh, last week, I, I talked a lot about being familiar with things, and I think as we read the Bible more and more, which is a good thing, right? You need to be familiar with the stories of the Bible, but sometimes, because we are so familiar with the stories, especially the Gospels, we're not as awestruck by what we see there. 
And so what I want to encourage you to do this morning is sort of put yourself into the story. Put yourself into that crowd. Put yourself into that, ho- that house that we're going to see as Jesus is healing people and healing Peter's mother-in-law. Put yourself there and experience what it would have been like to sit in that synagogue and see a man, demon-possessed, interact with Jesus. Being there in Simon Peter's house when the mother-in-law is healed. Seeing the people come from the city and being healed and demons cast out of them. Put yourself in that this morning and be awestruck by what you encounter. So look with me, Luke chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 31. Luke tells us this, and he, that's Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. This morning, as we are walking through this passage of Scripture, let me just remind you of what I mentioned last week. It could be, and I think it's a very possibility, that what we're reading here in Capernaum, taking place in Capernaum, preceded Jesus' encounter there in Nazareth that we talked about last Sunday. And so what we've seen in Luke chapter 4, we're going to continue to see today out of Luke chapter, 20, uh, chapter 4, not 24, is that Luke here is presenting Jesus as the priest. We say that in the first 13 verses. The prophet, the, what we looked at last week, and today we're going to see him presented as king. He is king over even the demonic world, king over the affairs of this world. And so Jesus is priest, prophet, and king. Therefore, the structure of these accounts enforces the author's purpose. And so chronology is not important. We look at it through a Western mindset and we say it's got to be in chronological order, but not so in the Eastern mind. And so Luke here tells us as he walks us through this passage here. He tells us that Jesus went down to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a small town. It's a fishing village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's about two miles or so from where the Jordan River dumps into what is known as the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was this prosperous fishing town. That's where uh, a lot of fishermen uh, had their businesses, and so they sold their fish there locally. They also sold their fish in a little town called Magdala, just to the west of Capernaum, maybe 8 to 10 miles, somewhere in that neighborhood. And so they would take their fish to the market there in Magdala, and the Romans would buy that fish. It would be salted because there's a lot of salt stuff there. And then they would ship that fish on into the Roman Empire, even to Rome itself. And so this was a big industry there on the Sea of Galilee. 
It's also the town where Jesus calls some of his first disciples. We're going to see in chapter 5, Jesus calling Andrew and Simon, James and John, as well as Levi that we know today as Matthew. Levi was a tax collector working there in Capernaum. Luke goes on to tell us that Jesus worshipped in the synagogue. Now, what do we know about that? Last week we saw it was his custom. As was his custom, Jesus now, here in Capernaum, comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath to worship. And the Sabbath, or I should say the synagogue, worship there on the Sabbath contained many elements. Part of those elements that we discussed last Sunday was the reading from the Torah and the reading of the prophets. That would have been followed by an exposition, a preaching, a teaching moment on those passages. And so Jesus here is taking part in the service. He's preaching the word of God to the people of God there in this synagogue service. And Luke tells us that as Jesus was preaching, as he was teaching, the people were astonished. They were awestruck by what they heard. See, he taught with an authority that was unlike anything that the priests and the teachers of their day possessed. His teaching came with exclamation marks. It came with power. He taught as if he had the ability and the right to define the word of God which was different than the teaching of the priests. Theirs was more second-hand theology. They were wrapped up in quotations. Their preaching and teaching was legalistic. It was weightless. It was joyless. It was boring. The Lord Jesus, on the other hand, taught like the Old Testament was his autobiography. And in reality, it was and is. And that synagogue, that particular day that we're reading here in this passage, as Jesus is teaching, as Jesus is participating in the service, among God's people there was a man who had an unclean spirit, Luke tells us. In other words, this man was demon-possessed. Now, as we read that, I want to encourage you not to run past this detail. Why should we not run past this? Well, first of all, it's not something you see every day, and it's definitely something you would not expect to see in a house of worship, right? Where do we think we are going to find demons? Movies and stories portray demons where out in graveyards, and we do see some of that in the Gospels, right? You, we're going to get into a, 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 a story here in a little bit where you got the demoniac, and he's out in the tombs. He's roaming around the countryside there. We see that, but that's where we only expect to see demonic activity. In graveyards, in the woods, chasing people down and hurting them. That's the portrayal that we see in the movies and in the stories that we read. And what we find here, though, is altogether different. See, I believe Satan would prefer us to look for the demonic among the dead while he's gaining ground among the living. And he's gaining ground here in this synagogue, this demon-possessed man. Think about it. He's all dressed up and a full participating member right there in the synagogue. How do we know that? Because there's no objection that he's there. The people are not astonished. They're just like, well, that's Joe. That's Joe. Why, Joe, I don't understand why you're talking like this, but this is Joe. We know Joe, right? I hope no one's Joe in here tonight, this morning. I just offended all the Joes that are watching online or in here this morning. But that's, we know him. He, he's a full participating member of this house of worship. And so they accepted this man. Yet his presence in the synagogue, it, it ought to open our eyes up to the reality that the gates of hell are always looking to infiltrate and gain a foothold in the local church even today. After worship that day, after he preaches and teaches, after he encounters and engages with this demon-possessed man, he goes to eat dinner with Simon Peter and his family in his home. And there, Simon's mother-in-law is sick. 
Jesus rebukes the fever. She's healed. And news of his miracles that day spread throughout the countryside. And people began to come to Peter's house and bring in their sick, bring in their demon-possessed family members and friends. And Luke tells us that Jesus sits there and places his hand on each and every one of them that day. And they are all healed and made whole. It was a glorious day in Capernaum on that Saturday. As those demons were being cast out, again, we see that Luke tells us that Jesus prevented them from speaking. As we read this passage, as we work to understand it in its context and all that's going around it, here's what we discover. We discover that many people fail to recognize Jesus or to know him. There's a lot of people who did recognize him, but there's many who failed to recognize him. We've seen that over these four chapters. They missed him. Unfortunately, others didn't miss him. They recognized Jesus as the Son of God. They recognized Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Uh, among those who recognized Jesus, think about this, were the demons. I think I've mentioned in the last few weeks that, that demons know who God is. Demons know who Jesus is. They recognize his divinity. They recognize his Messiahship. They recognize his kingship. There's no doubt in their minds as to who Jesus was or who Jesus is today. So I believe it's imperative that we too recognize Jesus, that we seek to know him. Here's what I want you to think about. We dare not allow the demons of hell to speak more honestly about who Jesus is than we do. We need to recognize him. Now, they didn't go as far as to say, you are my Lord, but they recognized him as the Lord. We're going to see that as we walk through this passage. The demons and the people of Capernaum said, Jesus, I know you. They recognize, I want to share with you four things that they recognized about him. First of all, I know you, you teach with authority. Jesus taught with authority. As we read through this, we see that Jesus' teaching was clear. He preached with clarity. He preached the word of God, not about the word of God. He preached the word, not about the word. You say, what's the difference? I'd say there's a world of difference between the two. One will make a child of God. The other will make a religious person. One will change a person's life. The other one will just kind of put a veneer on the outside and call it a day. Jesus delivered with clarity the message the people needed to hear. See, what Jesus did is he always put his finger on the pulse of the people's lives. He shined the light of God's word on their sin. He knew their need, exposed their need, because many times we don't even know the needs we have. But Jesus will put his finger there. He'll shine the, the spotlight of the Holy Spirit there. For example, as we looked last week at his encounter with his hometown there in Nazareth, what does the Lord do? Well, they were marveling over his preaching. They were marveling over his words. As he also taught in the synagogue, but he was never satisfied with their marveling over him. Instead, he saw the need in their lives. He saw that they didn't recognize him as Jesus. In fact, they even, they even confessed it themselves. They said, is this not Joseph's son? They didn't fully grasp that he was the Messiah, and so he purposely offended them. He purposely pointed out their failure to recognize and to honor him for who he was. Called them to embrace him as the Son of God. That's what the preacher is always commissioned to do, to, to, to bring the people to the brink of understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. I came across a quote this week from Henry Ward Beecher about preachers. He said, The saddest moment in any preacher's life is when he comes down from his pulpit, knowing that he gave the people not the best he knew, but only what they expected. As we look at Jesus and his 
encountering of people, he didn't give people what they expected. Jesus gave people what they needed. There's a big difference between those. He clearly delivered what they needed in their life. And so the preacher, think about this, the preacher is responsible for presenting with clarity the unadulterated teaching of God's word. That's why when we try to teach the Word of God around here, we want to lift from the text exactly what it says, bring application, absolutely, but we want to say what the Bible says, not talk about the Bible and put our own spin on the Bible. We want to let the Word of God speak for the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit can take it and move and move us to where we need to be, move in us and move us to where we need to be. Jesus taught with clarity. He also taught with conviction. Jesus' teaching was convicting. He preached with conviction. What do you mean by preaching with conviction? He believed what he said. I mean, there's a big difference between standing up and saying, this is what the Bible says, but I don't really believe it, or preaching in a way that that doesn't come across, but that's not how Jesus taught the Word of God. He believed it because he wrote it right? The gospel of John emphasizes this point. In John chapter 1, we see that the word, the logos, was in the beginning before creation took place. We see that the logos, the word of God, was the mouthpiece or the medium or the mode by which creation actually came into existence. And then we see that the logos, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the disciples will pick up on this. In John chapter 6, verse 68, Jesus is there discussing current events with his disciples. He had taught a really difficult teaching to them, and many of them fell away, John says. So he looks at his disciples, and Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says, where would we go? For you have the words of life. In other words, you are the words, the word of life. Where would we go? And so Jesus taught the word of God with authority. He trusted the spirit of God to use it to reveal sin, draw sinners to saving faith in him. And for us, if the church is to have authority today, it must rest its teaching on the authority of God's word. I have nothing to say to any of you that means anything outside of what this word right here says. Right? And you have absolutely nothing to speak into someone else's life that can actually make lasting, eternal difference outside of what this word says has to say. We don't validate people's feelings. We don't validate people's wants. We don't validate any sort of emotional thing. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But when it conflicts with what this word says, we need to get back to what this word says. That's the authority, the only authority that we have. So they would have preferred to have the feelings Today, I believe we live in a day in which we would prefer to have the feelings. We live in a day in which people want nothing to do with biblical doctrine. Uh, People want to feel good. They don't want to be made to feel bad. My goal every Sunday or every time I stand before the uh, congregation, you or someone else, and I preach and teach, my goal is not to make you feel bad. My goal is to deliver the Word of God, and I hope you feel good about it. But whether you feel good or feel bad about it, that's not up to me. I'm simply the messenger. As a church, we're the messenger of the Word of God, and we can't worry and focus on the feelings. Why? Because feelings are deceptive. I can feel a certain way, but that's not the reality of where I'm at, right? I may come here in here on a Sunday morning, and I may get up on a, on a regular morning and open my Bible, and I don't feel like doing whatever. I don't feel like listening, or I don't feel like following this command. It could be that I ate a bad burrito the night, the night before, Right? Feelings are deceptive. 
When am I going to do what's right? Jesus taught with authority. Jesus taught with clarity and conviction. Those at Capernaum said, I know you, you teach with authority. But they also said, I know you, you demonstrate power over the demonic. As we read this, there's no way to know when this demon-possessed man began to object to Jesus' teaching, but we do know at some point he did that. At some point he stood up and he encountered Jesus. He, he, he went toe-to-toe with Jesus. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The reaction here that we read is always the reaction of the demonic in the presence of Jesus. It's always that. Again, going back to James 2.19, the demons believe and shudder. What do they believe? They believe that there is a God. They believe he is Lord. They believe he is king. They shudder at that. What does that word mean? The, the word in the Greek is frizzo. It literally means to bristle up. If you've ever been outside and you see a stray cat that's really not friendly to anybody, it's scared of people, and, and so you encounter that alley cat, if you will, and, and you kind of startle it. What does it do? It frizzes up, it bristles up, and hisses at you, but if it came at you, I mean, it's just like a little drop kick, and you, you see that thing moving like 30 yards. There's no comparison to us as humans. You might run. I'd give it a boot. Please don't send your emails to someone else on that one, all right? Um, but that, that's what's happening here. The demons are bristling up. In other words, they're like a, a frightened cat in the presence of Jesus. They're scared to death. They're ready to fight, bristling up, but incapable of doing anything about it. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Shut your mouth and come out. That's what Jesus says. This demon bristled up to Jesus. He wanted the Lord to go away. He wanted him to leave him and his congregation alone. I want you to catch that as well. The demon's not in this synagogue because he just loves being in the presence of God's people, right? He's in this congregation to infiltrate and to lead them astray. It's his congregation in his mind. And so he says, what have you to do with us? That's his shout of defiance. It's not really a question. It's a defiant statement. It's an instinctive cry of dread. You've come to destroy us. You see, the demon and all demons understand what we need to understand. God is in control. Jesus is in control. There's coming a day they will be judged. There's coming a day they will be cast into the lake of fire. It may not be that day, but they know it's coming someday. He's the Holy One of God. So as we read this interchange, it's important to understand he's not seeking to suck up to Jesus when he's asking what we see as a question. No, he's frantically attempting to bring the Lord under his power. I came across something that's, that's been interesting to me this week. I've never thought about it this way. I've always actually wondered why he's asking these questions. But according, according to William Lane in his commentary, he says it was widely believed at that time that the exact knowledge of the other's name brought mastery or control over him. So in other words, the demon here was attempting to exert control over Jesus by speaking his name. Now we read that and we think that's absolutely ludicrous. How could you do that? But that's the mindset. That's the twisted mindset of the demonic and influence in the culture of the day. So Jesus here with one word rebuked the demon, commanding him to be silent and to come out of him. Same thing happens at Peter's house later that evening. Each demon tries to attempt to exercise control over Jesus, to bring Jesus under their authority. And with one word, he says, be gone. Everyone that day in Capernaum, including the demons of hell, recognized Jesus demonstrates power over the demonic. 
They knew him to be the son and the holy one of God. They knew his power lies in his identity. And we, as we think about Jesus, we need to remember that. Jesus' power lies in his identity. Today we recognize that the demons of hell, they're real and they're active. We should not be uh, lulled into a, a state of non-belief when it comes to the spiritual powers at, at, at work and other places. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that, that our wrestle, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, things of evil, and, and things in areas that we can't see. They're working overtime. Who's behind the Russian invasion to Ukraine? Is it Vladimir Putin? No, he's a pawn. He's a pawn in all of this. Is he an evil man? I believe he is an evil man. But who's controlling that situation? It's the demonic powers that are working here. They're the ones leading to that. What do the demons of hell want to do? What are they seeking to, to create in our world? Well, they're behind every facet of immorality and evil. They work to create chaos and disunity. They're, they spread death and lies. I mean, the demons of hell would love to see genocide happen in every country of the world. They're behind every false religion. They work to ruin marriages and fracture the family. Their influence and control can seem insurmountable, but we need to understand that Jesus demonstrates power over them. He has power over the demonic. He speaks a word and the demons may bristle in fear, but they are helpless. Today, we know Jesus to be the one who brings peace amid war. He's truth and exposes the lie. He cleans up the sinful and heals the broken. The people in Capernaum, including even the demons there, knew Jesus to have power over the demonic. But they also said this, I know you, you healed the sick. Luke tells us that Peter's mother-in-law was very sick. Luke is a doctor. He's speaking from a doctor's perspective here, and so we don't need to take this lightly. And so as he describes this, what we see here is a woman who has a high fever, uh, a fever that they can't get down. It's prevented her from coming to worship that day. It's prevented her from taking care of the home. It's prevented her from doing all of her natural, normal activities. And so they come to Jesus and appeal to Jesus. Uh, you've done some miracles today. Can you do another one for mama? Jesus goes into her. He looks at her. He stands over her. I don't know if he's straddling her for standing by her bed or what, but he stands above her and rebukes the sickness. All he did is speak a word. Be gone. Be gone. And she immediately is healed. She is immediately better. He issued a charge, and she's healed. There's two things worth identifying about this miracle. First, we see that Jesus possessed the power to heal the sick. It's already been indicated that he simply rebuked it, and the fever was gone. But Peter's mother-in-law, when that all happened, immediately got up. She immediately began to start dinner. That would have been an amazing moment, right? Put yourself in that situation. You've seen mama all day, maybe for days, just suffering from a high fever. You've done everything possible to get a hold of this fever, and you've not been successful. Jesus comes in and says, get up. And she gets up, and she begins to wait the table. She begins to take care of the things. And you're mesmerized by all this. You're just blown away that Jesus has the power to do that. She's been exhausted for hours, if not days, and now she has all the strength in the world to get to work. Second thing that I think is important is that Jesus possessed the empathy to want to heal. Don't miss that. Jesus possessed the empathy to want to heal. Now, some detractors may look at this story and say, the only reason Jesus did this for Peter's mother-in-law is because he's hungry, right? I need somebody to fix dinner. 
I mean, I could command these things to become bread, but she'll do it. So why don't we just kill her and she'll eat? I don't, I've never heard anybody say that, but I could see some cynics kind of making that argument. It's just male chauvinism. Woman, you need to be in the kitchen. Get in the kitchen. I'm going to heal you. Get in the kitchen. Uh, hopefully we don't think that, but I could see some people going in that direction. But that's not what's happening here. How do we know that? It's because of what Luke tells us. He goes on to say, not only did he heal this woman, but he says he sat there after dinner as all the people were coming to him, and he healed every one of them. And he didn't just heal them by speaking a word. He lays his hands on them. You say, what's the big deal about that? You read the Old Testament, you read rabbinic literature, you won't find any sort of healing taking place like that. It's usually, uh, we're going to throw this branch into this water, and it's going to Make the water sweet again is the way the Bible describes it. You don't have this hand-on type of ministry taking place. But here is the king of kings setting before these people who are sick and demon-possessed. He is lord over even the evil forces of this world, and he lays his hands on them. That's unheard of in the Jewish culture. Why? Because they're unclean. You don't touch lepers. You don't touch sickness. You get this taint of death. Those of you who were in Israel with me a few weeks ago, we heard about this oftentimes. You had this taint of death that you constantly have to be cleansed from. For Jesus to sit there and touch unclean people was unheard of, but he empathized with them. And he sat there all night until the very last one was healed. Jesus has the power to heal our lives. Jesus has the power and the want to to step into the broken spaces of our lives and bring healing and restoration there. And the people in Capernaum knew this. They experienced this. And what we see from this is that he wants to do the same thing in our own lives. People in Capernaum says, I know you. You heal the sick. Lastly, the people in Capernaum said, I know you. You are the Holy One of God. Again, the demons of hell had no doubt about who Jesus was. Still today, they have no doubt about Jesus' identity. They know him to be the Son of God. They know him to be the Holy One of God. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. Luke is making that argument for us. Back then, and even still today, many people, though, do not know Jesus. They fail to recognize him for who he is. We've read of several who rightfully recognize Jesus. They came to know him as their Lord and Savior. They experienced his healing touch on their lives. Those in Capernaum said, I know you. You are the Holy One of God. But not everyone that we see in Scripture did that. I wonder if we recognize and know Jesus like they did. I wonder if we've experienced the broken spaces of our lives healed and restored by the God who wants to heal them. I wonder if we've experienced the redemption that Jesus offers us freely today. The demons said, you're the Holy One of God. The, the, the people there in Capernaum knew him to be the Holy One of God. Do we know him to be the Holy One of God? Many times, we really don't recognize the blessing and the asset that certain people are in our lives. Going back to Benjamin Franklin in the city of Philadelphia, the city leaders there acted as if they didn't know Benjamin Franklin. He kept bringing his concerns about the safety and the welfare of the citizens before the leaders. He kept, they kept turning a deaf ear. Well, Benji, dude, we got this. Benji, go on and, and make another set of glasses. I want different frames this time. Come on, help me out here. They just turned this deaf ear. But finally, here's what Benjamin Franklin did. He had had enough of their uh, inaction. And so one day he decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig a post hole. 
I'm going to dig a postal out there on the edge of my yard, right there by the walkway. I'm going to set a post in that, in that hole. I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to make sure it's level. I'm going to make sure it's good to go. And that evening, he comes back to that post, and he hangs a kerosene lantern just before sunset. As the sunset went down and things began to get dark, the people living on his street around him began to notice this light that they had never seen before. They walk out, they see this, this lantern illuminating the walkway there outside his home, and they began to wonder about this. They stood around in the, in the ambiance of that glow, and they talked about how wonderful this is. They'd never thought about putting a kerosene lantern out there on the street so that they could see where they're walking, so that they could be seen and perhaps not be robbed by some thug on the street. They begin to talk about how wonderful this is. You know what happened next? The next night, another person hung a lantern. Next night after that, another person hung a lantern. And then after that, another and another and another. And it said that after a very short time, the city of Philadelphia was aglow. Why? It's because Benjamin Franklin recognized the need, came up with a remedy acted on that remedy, and people began to follow suit, and, and the city of Philadelphia began to be aglow at night. It became safer. It didn't completely wash out and, and take care of the problems, but it helped to alleviate many of those problems. As you think about what Jesus has done for us on a much greater and eternal scale, Jesus has seen the need in our lives, and he's become not just a remedy, he's become the remedy. You see, Jesus sees the need in us, and he was willing to sacrifice himself to pay the penalty for all sin. The Bible tells us that his blood that was shed pays the penalty for our sinful choices and decisions. God the Father accepts his payment there on the cross, and because of that, he cancels the debt. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he says to Telestai, what do you think he was talking about? Paid in full. It is finished. That's what Jesus has done for us. Today, we don't have just a little bitty light illuminating a little bitty space. We have the light of the world, Jesus Christ. People of Capernaum looked at Jesus and said, I know you. I know you. You teach with authority. I know you. You demonstrate power over the demonic. I know you. You heal the sick. You've touched my family. You've touched my life. I know you. You're the Holy One of God. You're not just a religious teacher. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a good guy. You're not just a good, faithful Jew. You're the Holy One of God. Do you know Jesus like that this morning? If you don't, today's the day to know him like that. Even as a believer, sometimes we can be so familiar with Jesus that he loses the, magnif the, the ramifications and the majesty of who he is in our life. So let's just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to take his word this morning and just kind of place. Remember, Jesus knows where to put his finger in our life. What does he need to put his finger on today? Father in heaven, we pray that your precious Holy Spirit would take the word of God that we've talked about this morning and, and the life of Jesus that we've examined. And I pray that you would take that and, and just press it upon our lives wherever it needs to be set. For some in this room, for some online, that means today they need to give their lives to Jesus. They're walking at a guilty distance. They're dead in sin and trespasses, as Paul says. They're far from God. And today you're calling them to yourself. You're calling them to find forgiveness in you. You're calling them to find life in you. Lord, I pray they respond. God, for us as believers who are faithful. That's so many of us in this room. We attend church. We participate in small group. We serve. We do all of these things. And, and yet, Lord, if we're honest today, 
we can become so familiar, so common with the routine of Christian living that we lose sight of who you really are. Maybe in a much grander scale or a much lesser scale like Benjamin Franklin. Man, he's accomplished much, but how can you speak in this area? Lord, this morning, help us to see with fresh eyes once again the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we lean into you, trust you, and surrender ourselves to you and live for you. So, Lord, lead us in this time of response, we ask in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.